This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love It podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at SamanthaSherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, SamanthaSherry.com. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. So today we start a new book. We start another political tale. This time, instead of a play written 2,000 years ago, we will discuss a novel. Well, officially it's a novel, but its author called it a fairy tale, albeit without the Prince Charming, the beautiful princess, and most of all, the happily ever after ending. I'm not sure how it's a fairy tale at all, actually. That's true. Orwell was very careful with words, and that bit of satirical language sets the tone for what's to come in this strangely inspirational, scary, yet playful warning about the dangers of power and totalitarianism. And speaking of Orwell calling it a fairy tale... The American publisher annoyingly admitted that title in the American edition like after the first year, and no one else ever called it that again. I'm not really sure why. It's obviously a fable in that it works on several levels. First, it's a charming story about talking animals, and it works so well on that level, and it's written so simply that there are actually libraries who mistakenly put it in the juvenile section. But in some sense, it is the simpleness that makes it something of a relief to read. Uh, I saw a survey that was done by The Independent, the newspaper in Great Britain, and it's by far the most popular book adults remember from reading in school. It beats out The Great Gatsby, Charlotte's Web, Lord of the Flies. And if I were to guess, and I will because I just want to, I think it's because Most kids get tired of reading books that have complicated vocabulary and old-fashioned syntax, and they're just exhausting, and Animal Farm is none of that. It's simple. It has simplicity of form, and that kind of makes it simple to navigate. But if you read it only in that way, you are making a grave mistake. 
It's not the same as the Jungle Book or Beatrix Potter. It's a biting satire about Soviet totalitarianism. It's also an important allegory on basically what it means to be human. What are people really like? And it exposes complicated people as simply as possible, which is, you know, where his genius rests. So you should never mistake simplicity of form with simplicity of ideas. And an oversimplification of this story will make you the gullible fool he's writing and warning you not to be. You don't want to be the gullible fool. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, Another point uh, worth mentioning is that this book has been controversial from before it was even published. Um, Orwell finished the manuscript to Animal Farm in 1943, but it wasn't published until August 1945 by a company called Secker and Warburg. Frederick Warburg published the book despite his wife threatening to leave him if he did publish it. It was horrifying to publish a book so openly mocking the Russians who had been our allies in World War II and had lost so many men in their fight against Hitler and civilians as well. The book came out literally the same month in which the atomic bomb hit Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And although no one would have known it at the time, there's a bit of irony to think about the fact that the Manhattan Project, uh, an effort basically committed to figuring out how to blow up the world, was literally going on at the exact same time Orwell was writing his warning about the political scenario that would lead to such a disaster. Anyway, despite his wife's protestations, Warburg published a book And the 4,500 copies he printed sold out in just a few days. Nine million copies were sold by 1973, and Warburg gained popularity from his connection to Animal Farm. The fact that everyone knew the book would be controversial only made them want to read it more, as those things are prone to do. Well, hopefully the wife, you know, hung in there. I guess you saw it. (laughs) It it worked out. Uh, Even after World War II uh, and the book's obvious success, there's still been some opposition to it in the classroom, although it's nothing like uh, Of Mice and Men or Huck Finn. In the 60s in Wisconsin, the book was challenged because of its phrases about revolution, and people were afraid this would cause public revolt. At the same time, in New York, there was opposition because Orwell was a socialist. And they did not want to teach a book thought to be written by a communist. Uh, But in the end, it has been hailed in free countries as a great exposition of communism. And it's banned in countries where control of free thought is the government policy. Uh, Animal Farm is still banned in Cuba, uh, in Kenya, and in the United Arab Emirates. According to the American Library Association, and only a censored version is read in China, and the book was banned in Russia from 1945 until the 1980s. Of course, on the other side of this issue, and this is kind of funny, Animal Farm is the only book I know of that the CIA actually funded. In the 1950s, the CIA actually paid to have an animated version of this book distributed around the world. (laughs) Well, if nothing else, this unassuming fairy tale does seem to ruffle feathers, and it can't be ignored. Uh, There's a lot of different ways to approach the book, and first, I think we must look at it, you know, through the original historical context. Indeed, the politics of Russia, Spain, the 1940s. This is extremely important in understanding 
how Orwell intended the book to be understood. Uh, there, he's even quoted as saying this, and this is interesting. This is the first book in which I tried with full consciousness to fuse political purpose with artistic purpose. So he wanted to expose the Soviets in some sense for the pigs. He thought they were. He had learned them to be from his firsthand experiences with them in Spain. He said that there was a lie. This is a quote. There was a lie that he wanted to expose and a fact that he wanted to draw attention to. However, however, (laughs) however, even people who don't really care about politics or history find a way to enjoy and understand the warning that Orwell is giving us because it is art. Even if it's not the complex, intense drama of you know most philosophical novels, it's inspired at least two movies that I know of. It's been referenced in or inspired songs by all sorts of artists, from hip hop duo Dead Prez to satirical post punks Half Man, Half Biscuit, Radio with Radiohead, REM, and Pink Floyd. It's art because his ideas are bigger and they outlive Stalinism. So while we definitely and we will draw all the connections between Napoleon and Stalin and Boxer and the proletariat and Mr. Jones and the czars, we're also going to try to draw out the more modern and timeless parallels as well. But before we get into every bit of that, and that's a big mouthful, I, I know it is, let's take a minute to look at this very unusual man who left us this bitterly humorous fable and before we do i want to compliment you on the references to all the musicians well i kind of cheated and googled some of those (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm not the musician but the the pink floyd people fans will understand but it is interesting it is interesting um george orwell by the way was not born george orwell his name was eric arthur blair and he was born on january 23 in 1903 to a minor official to the Indian customs in Bengal, India. He was the middle child, just like you, Gary, according to the Mm -hmm. way Orwell later described his family life and his economics. This is so funny to me. He described his family's economic situation as they were the lower upper middle class. Hmm. What does that mean, the lower upper middle class? It sounds like he's trying to be precise, uh, but he's throwing all the classes into one hyphenated expression. Uh, and what what is it? What's he mean by it? Well, I think I don't know. Maybe upper middle class, lower upper middle class. Is he the poor of the upper class? I th- <laughs> or the poor of the upper middle okay. anyway whatever it was he's he, the bottom of the upper middle class. exactly he well, didn't like this position uh, because he felt that it was lower at some level and i guess uh that is an interesting designation that perhaps 21st century americans we can't really identify with the class system the british class system because we have nothing that closely parallels this at all we don't have barons or marquesas or counts or dukes or lords or anything uh the way that the british have become accustomed and and the way that this kind of influenced george orwell or eric blair if you call him that uh by his real name it made him feel certain ways about himself and about his place in the world around him so in some sense what i think what he's trying to say and this is my interpretation 
He wants to own the fact that in some sense he's had a privileged, financially privileged upbringing compared to people around the world. And he can't deny that that's a part of who he is. But he also wants to claim that this privilege was not the sort of privilege one could really enjoy like a spoiled rich kid or a you know Downton Abbey character. Something like this, and this is how I interpret it. His parents are rich enough to be able to struggle enough so that he can afford to go to perhaps a fancy prep school, which he did, and that is a huge privilege. But when he got to the fancy prep school, he's the scholarship kid. So his father is in India. His mother has to leave India to bring him back to England. He's a divided family, and that's not a privilege. But he's attending a nice school, so that is a privilege. He's in with a lot of rich kids. That's a privilege. But he's not a rich kid. He's not one of them. So that's a not privilege. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, if you're keeping a scorecard. Okay. Well, I know you're probably saying, wah, wah, wah. So you're complaining about not being rich enough. Boo-hoo. And perhaps there's truth to that. He wouldn't say that there wasn't. But there is some legitimacy. And I feel sorry for him when I read about what he said about himself. And this is what he says. He describes himself like this. I had no money. I was weak. I was ugly. I was unpopular. I had a chronic cold. I was cowardly. I smelt. To me, this is horrible. And of course, every kid sees themselves through their own faults. Adults do that too. But what I find interesting about this description, and those are a lot of bad things, but money is the one that tops the list. And this is a bit ironic if you're sitting at Eton or any other expensive finishing school. This is not a regular middle class kid problem. Middle class kids have money problems because they want a car and they have to pay for the insurance themselves or they want designer clothes and their parents can't afford it. But everyone is kind of struggling and they're making choices like that. And it's uh, money isn't necessarily how they distinguish themselves or characterize themselves as different from other people around them. If you're in a blue-collar school like the one I teach at, and one kid wants to brag about himself and saying he has a little bit more of this or a little bit nicer car, you know, some other kid is going to say, well, you're still here at Bartlett High, so you're one of us. I think what Eric Blair was saying, he didn't feel like he was ever one of us when he was attending these fancy British schools and in the British class system, honestly, he really wasn't. He wasn't. And and having been born and raised in India away from it and then injected into the most stratified part of English society through Eton. Uh, yes, I can see where his animosity towards the class struggle begins to develop, which will eventually lead to his socialism. And as far as academics go, uh, he wasn't the underperformer he claimed to be. By age 13, he was chosen to receive not one, but two scholarships. One was the prestigious King Scholarship to what is arguably the most prestigious and famous high school on planet Earth, Eton, the boarding school that has educated Prince Harry and Prince William and Boris Johnson, just to name a few of its alumni that are influential today. Um, It's a nice opportunity, uh, and although I don't feel tremendous amounts of sympathy for him, I do acknowledge that it did make him really aware of this idea of haves and have-nots and the arbitrary and sometimes unfair rules of the universe used to determine one from the other. 
Well, as an adult writing about these teenage experiences, Orwell said that he didn't exactly make the most of his time at Eaton. <laughs> he didn't even finish. We've seen that a lot. Yeah, he slacked there. That's his words, not mine. And he left in December of 1921, only after about three years and change, to take the entrance exam to join the Indian Imperial Police. And he was expected, expected, he was accepted into the Burma Division. So, just like his father before him, there he goes, back east, where he's going to live in Burma for five years. And what we know about his experiences in there, although not a lot, come from... Uh, a couple of essays, Shooting an Elephant being one of my favorites, and this book titled Burmese Days that was published in 1934 in New York. Basically, what we can gather from these books and why this even matters when we talk about Animal Farm is this. Orwell was absolutely revolted about what he saw from being a member of the colonial class. He felt that how he was enforcing the law in Burma was just not fair, and what he was doing, by definition, was cruel. He thought to inflict colonial rule upon a separate people was oppressive, and even though he did what he was supposed to do, he felt a lot of guilt about the injustices that he was doing, or colonial colonialism was perpetuating on massive amount of undeserving people. So in a sense, as a child, he feels like he's on the oppressed side of things, and he didn't like that, but when he grew up, he became a member of the oppressor side, and he didn't like that either. So he leaves Burma in 1927, and in an article in this that he calls How I Became a Socialist, he says this, I was already half determined to throw up the job, and one snuff of English air decided me. I was not going back to be part of that evil, de- evil depotism. Despotism. Thank you. <laughs> I thought that was the up. word you were, you were going it for. It was. Uh, so, you know, interestingly enough, his response to all that inner turmoil really does depict a man who's trying to sort out the right way honest men should live in a relationship to each other. Uh, and it's in that spirit that his interest in socialism and communism was born. And so he takes another step in figuring out the political answer. And I guess in some sort of mission that he really had lived a privileged life, he went to live on the streets of Paris and in London mainly as a homeless person. Although there were periods where he got jobs as a dishwasher or tutor or other odds and end types of things, it seems he wanted to experience life as poorly as it could be possibly lived. And for a man whose health had already been wrecked by life in Burma, that was not really a good choice. No, it wasn't. And the, but the end result, professionally, wasn't all bad. He walks away from his homeless days with a book called Down and Out in Paris and London. And really, uh, maybe it was worth the starvation he subjected himself to, because even though it didn't really sell well, who wants to read that? It was well received by critics, and it's going to kind of set him on his little literary journey to where he's going to get some sort of respectability and find his you know place in the world, so to speak. I will say, after that, he finally decides to settle down. He's going to buy a cottage, but more importantly, he's going to find true love. And the woman, and saying her last name is a struggle for me, 
Eileen O'Shaughnessy. O'Shaughnessy. O'Shaughnessy, yeah. You got to practice your Irish names there. Uh, But even though that was true, Orwell was not going to stay settled for very long, and world events are going to take over. The Spanish Civil War was going on, and Orwell and his wife wanted to get in the mix. It was his experiences in the Spanish Civil War that were really going to define his political views. He was a Republican volunteer against Franco, but Orwell was present in Barcelona when the Soviet-sponsored hit squads were taking down the Trotsky Marxist Workers' Party militia where he was assigned. So there's a lot of moving political parts going on right here. So to put this another way, Franco was supposed to be the bad guy because Franco was a fascist dictator, kind of like Mussolini and Hitler. The communists were supposed to be fighting that. But Orwell saw that they had their own agenda, actually, in spite of what they said they were doing. Uh, And in all of this, Orwell got shot in his throat and missed having his carotid artery severed by millimeters, according to Spanish doctors. For two months, he couldn't speak at all. And one of his vocal cords was paralyzed permanently, which altered the way he talked for the rest of his life. In his time in Spain, he saw firsthand the ruthlessness and the treachery of the communists. He had been so concerned up to this point in his life with class and money, but this war told a very different story. Things were more complicated than he understood. He had really thought that his dream of building a world where his three core values of liberty, equality, and fraternity, isn't that French, by the way? It is. <laughs> those, those core values would have a chance to flourish, uh, and they would find a home with the Russians. And in Spain, he saw the painful truth about the Russians specifically, but really about all humans that he's going to illustrate in Animal Farm. He begins to understand that people will most certainly betray each other over power. They will lie. They will deceive. But on the other hand, he also made genuine friends and found people who loved each other and sacrificed for each other. I like this quote where he says, This war has left me with memories which are mostly evil, and yet I do not wish that I had missed it. Curiously enough, the whole experience has left me with not less but more belief in the decency of human beings. Well, that's a bit ironic, uh, but his nonfiction piece, Homage to Catalonia, uh, is highly regarded as an objective narrative of that war, but no one really has read it. Uh, they didn't want to read it at the time, and it's gotten a little popular over the years, but that's mostly with history buffs. <laughs> and I can tell you, history buffs can be a boring crowd. <laughs> yeah, so, so, but it is, you know, people have become interested, I guess, in the in that work as a precursor to the things that we know now had happened right afterwards. Oh, yeah, the Spanish Civil War is just pivotal to so many things. Um, and again, uh, world events bigger than Orwell are going to define everything. World War II begins, and everyone wanted to fight for Hitler, except Orwell can't fight because of his horrible health and his war injury. He does work in a war effort as a journalist, and even though at first he really believes World War II has the potential to bring in some sort of socialist change for the better, by the time Animal Farm is written in 1943, which is halfway through the war, his political views are formed and his opinion on the Soviet experiments are decidedly unkind, to say the least. 
One fun fact is that a little ironic is that he finished writing a book in 1943 in London while bombs were falling on that town. And in fact, one bomb even damaged the manuscript of the book because it fell on the street where Orwell and his wife were living. Oh, my. Well, this is where I think we really have to camp out uh, because this gets really confusing uh, for people who didn't live through the 20th century. Uh, Here is a young man. A good man, an idealistic man, he seems to really have a strong sense of fairness from his earliest days, and he seemed to observe of hierarchies and how unfair they can be, and he wants the world to be a place where good people are rewarded and respected and bad people are held in check. True, very idealistic. And one of the things we always like to do when we talk about a a new book, we do have to talk about the author's world because authors don't write out of nothing. They write out of all these experiences. And George Orwell is unique in that he has such a huge, colossal, swirling number of influences that were really engulfing the world. And so he's like a microcosm of the whole world being swept up during this time period. And, you know, living through the 20th century is going to challenge the idea that a world that he wants is even possible. So let's look at what's going on. First, we have all these isms. Okay? <laughs> there are a lot of isms. You need a scorecard for Starting all the isms. Starting from the very first one, he starts off in a world of colonialism. So tell us about that. Well, colonialism is a, a byproduct of the 19th century where many nations in Europe were becoming industrially powerful. Uh, and when they became industrially powerful, they became wealthy. When they became wealthy, they increased the size of their militaries. And it was common under colonialism to think if we're going to produce all these goods, we have to have places to get raw materials from, and we have to control markets to sell all the materials to which is why you saw so many nations in Europe go about the process of using force to take over huge parts of Asia and uh, the Middle East and the African continent because they were trying to guarantee markets for their growing industrialism. So you're saying it's a little bit like the Hunger Games. You have these outposts that were producing stuff and bringing stuff into the capital and then sending them back out. Or maybe we could say <laughs> the Hunger Games was a little like colonialism. Okay. <laughs> Oh, yeah, probably so. (laughs) We'll reverse that. Uh, So anyway, we have colonialism. And then we have Hitler to come onto the scene. So let's add another ism. Let's add some fascism. So what's that? Oh, my gosh. Fascism. In a nutshell. Oh, you want the short version? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay. Fascism is um, a government where you basically have a dictatorial-style government and usually have one-party control. Uh, Even under Hitler's fascism, there was a goal eventually to establish all parties. He saw political parties as uh, the antithesis of what people needed in government. And fascism allows for kind of a... um, what we would call a capitalistic economy, but a very tightly controlled government. Well, that ended up being the problem that the world was confronting because everybody has to fight Hitler. But he doesn't really talk about Hitler Animal Farm. We're going to, you know, of course, he talks about learning these experiences or learning about Stalinism from his time in Franco. But this is more about the Russian experiment. But before we get to Russia, what about Franco? Okay, well, so right before World War II breaks out, we have the Civil War in Spain. 
Um, the civil war in Spain is going to be primarily between two groups. You're going to have the nationalist group, which is Franco, and the nationalists are made up of the upper class and the conservatives and the, the traditional religionists. And Franco is going to basically have the support of Germany and Italy. And I, I do want to point out that uh, Spain will become a practice ground for the German military for all their new technology that they were developing. World War I had been trench warfare and was very stagnant. World War II was going to be very fast and very lightning-paced, hence the term Blitzkrieg. A lot of those military tactics are worked out in battlefields in Spain. And then you had the side that Orwell supported, which were the Republicans, which were a combination of communists and workers and left-leaning groups and anarchists and uh, they were being supported a little bit more covertly by the Soviet Union. So the idea is Orwell and his idealism wants to go over there and fight the big man and the big man are the haves and he's on team have not and he thinks the Russians are team have not but when he gets in the mix with the Russians he's going to see maybe there is no such animal oh my gosh (laughs) well let me confuse everybody with all the isms so we have a man who believes in socialism who's against colonialism who's involved in a civil war between fascism and communism got all the isms got him there's a lot to me the common thread that orwell seems to have connected between all these things is that in the end tyrants just emerge There exists people in the world who want to rule, dominate, and oppress other people. And this is a much bigger problem than economics can solve, socialism versus capitalism. It's a deep problem. It's a problem of human nature. And another thing that I think you probably noticed because it comes out in the book is that the tool to manipulate is language. And language is used to deceive, of course, In 1839, the English author Edward Bulwer-Lytton says, the pen is mightier than the sword, and that's, of course, almost a cliché. Oh, even Frederick Douglass clearly demonstrated that, the the words create reality. Right, and Orwell is going to kind of take that much farther than any of these other men before him uh, had before, because it can be true in a good way, like what Frederick Douglass did, and raising awareness and making people rise up or in the way that Winston Churchill did by motivating the British to stand strong against Hitler or maybe even how football coaches use words to inspire players to win championships. But Orwell is going to really focus on how it was used or can be used in evil ways, how people can take the language of brotherhood and camaraderie and justice and equality and fraternity and use these same words twist their meanings to deceive gullible people into giving up control of their lives and this can all be done very nicely at first but as soon as they get that noose around your neck words are gone and he saw this in barcelona because eventually violence emerges and there is just no mercy orwell is going to tell us a story where there's a dream of a world that's fair and peaceful. The dream is fleshed out by an inspirational leader, but after his death, the ones in charge of carrying the dream are entrenched in corruption, and they realize that, whoo-hoo, I'm in charge of the storehouse, and they're going to keep them for themselves. What do you think? 
Well, I think uh, Orwell sets in one of the most absolute interesting points in U.S. history. He's part of the previous century that was based on optimism and man's ability to perfect his world and uh, and all the industrialization was creating all types of actually new positive things and the world looked like it was going to spiral ever upward into progress. And then that generation runs headlong into two world wars and the devastating meaninglessness of the two world wars and all of the uh, the things you just said, the horrible use of language and the manipulation of truth and the, the gaslighting of reality. So Orwell is caught up in the vortex of those enormous world events. And hence we come out with this sweet little tale about animals. <laughs> or is that really what it is? <laughs> well, I think we can assume already it's really not what it is. No. Well... Uh, that's probably enough about his background. Maybe we can get to what happens to him uh, after the publication of Animal Farm in a different episode. But should we start the book? Um, yes, let's start the book. So, Christy, will you read for us the first few pages as we usually do in every book? Of course. But I will say that this book, being a fairy tale, does not give away the theme so clearly as we would see it done in maybe The Scarlet Letter of Mice and Men or Lord of the Flies. Uh, What Orwell wants to do in the first few pages is catch us off guard. He's going to draw us into this beautifully deceptive, strange world of talking animals and lightheartedness. And I believe he does this because the power of the irony of the bitterness of deception is going to hit us much stronger and uh well in a more powerful way when we really figure out uh what's going on so i do want to uh read this a little bit but i'm gonna skip i'm gonna read the little bit but i'm gonna skip a chunk of it and read to you what i think uh is the most important part it starts out like this mr jones of the manor farm had locked the hen house for the night but was too drunk to remember to shut the pop holes With the ring of light from his lantern dancing from side to side, he lurched across the yard, kicked off his boots at the back door, drew himself a last glass of beer from the barrel in the scullery, and made his way up to bed, where Mrs. Jones was already snoring. So it opens up at the scene of a man in charge who's basically extremely irresponsible. He's not taking care of the people that he's in charge of or he's responsible for. And he references alcohol three times, not because this is a book about alcohol, because it's trying to show he's a very irresponsible person. So he goes away, and we're going to meet a whole bunch of characters and animals. We're going to meet Old Major, who's a prize middle white boar. We're going to meet um, three dogs, Bluebell, Jesse, and Pincher. And we're going to meet pigs and hens and pigeons and cows and Sheep, and we're going to meet two court heart, cart horses, one named Boxer and one named Clover. And they're all going to come together. And there's uh, a goat named Merle and a donkey named Benjamin, if he's, of course, the worst tempered one of them all. And they're going to all congregate. Oh, and there's Molly. Molly is a foolish, pretty mare, and she likes ribbons. Uh, <laughs> and then there's the raven that's Moses. And they're all going to congregate into this barn because. Uh, old Major has had a dream and he wants to talk and he's so wise everyone has to listen to what he has to say and he's going to say this 
Comrades, you have heard already about the strange dream that I had last night, but I will come to the dream later. I have something else to say first. I do not think, comrades, that I shall be with you many months longer, and before I die, I feel it my duty to pass on to you such wisdom as I have acquired. I have had a long life, if I have had much time for thought as I lay alone in my stall, and I think I may say that I understand the nature of life on this earth as well as any animal now living, and it is about this that I wish to speak to you. Now, comrades, what is the nature of this life of ours? Let us face it. Our lives are miserable, laborious, and short. We're born, we're given just as much food as we keep the breath in our bodies, and those of us who are capable of it are forced to work to the last atom of our strength. And the very instant that our usefulness has come to an end, we are slaughtered with hideous cruelty. No animal in England knows the meaning of happiness or leisure after he's a year old. No animal in England is free. The life of an animal is misery and slavery. And that is the plain truth. Then, of course, he's going to talk about more about the plain truth. But it comes down to this. There, comrades, is the answer to all of our problems. It's summed up in a single word. Man. Man is the only real enemy we have. Remove man from the scene, and the root cause of hunger and overwork is abolished forever. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, did you catch the Hobbesian reference in there? What Hobbesian reference? <laughs> about life basically being brutish and short. <laughs> well, I didn't catch that, but he certainly was—he certainly had enough blame for man. <laughs> well, he did, and that is a—we need to get into the idea of demagoguery. A demagogue is somebody who creates a very, very simple explanation for a very, very complicated problem. And in this case, demagoguery is man— Man is the problem. He's the single problem. Get rid of one single problem and everything's going to be awesome. And he also, in the very first section right here, is laying out the Marxist ideology of oppression. And Marxism always had at its core this constant struggle of oppression between groups of people. So you have these problems, and the solution is to get rid of this other guy or this other... Right. Somebody's oppressing you, therefore you have to fight back. And so anytime you've got uh, an oppression narrative, what you really have is Marxist thinking. Well, and this is where he's going to end up. Is it not crystal clear then, comrades, that all the evils of this life of ours spring from the tyranny of human beings? Only get rid of man and the produce of our labor would be all our own. Well, and what he's doing is he's laying out there right away that whole idealistic world that if we, whether it's in Marxist fashion, get rid of oppressive classes, they think everything's going to be wonderful and awesome. Well, the animals are ready to give it a go. They are. But guess what? The animal's true character is going to come out, which is the whole point of Orwell's work. So... Uh, next week, we will meet the characters and find out who they are in real life. Well, we'll tell the story of the real Mr. Jones, uh, who was this guy, who is Old Major, if he's even one person, and take a closer look at life on Manor Farm and figure out who they are supposed to be in real life. It's going to be very interesting and historical, I might add. Get yourself ready for that. All right. Well, next week, we're going to have a history lesson and an Farming lesson. <laughs> yes, yes, because Orwell was an amateur farmer. He did that. He loved his farming. But anyway, 
Uh, we're glad you're with us for a new book. It's always an exciting time when we do that. Uh, as we always like to say, you can keep up to date with us on our Facebook page, on our Instagram page. Also, even more importantly, our HowToLoveLitPodcast.com page. Uh, we have more information on all the books we talk about and all kind of great teaching materials. But we always like to encourage you to go tell your friends. Tell your friends about our podcast. They may need some good books to listen to on their travels or whatever they may have going on. So thanks for being with us, and we'll catch you next time. Peace out. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.